0: Well, today we find ourselves once again in the final chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And Lord, we ask now that you'd open our hearts and minds to hear all that your spirit is saying to the church today. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, we just started chapter 4 last week. And uh, we looked at those first three verses when the Holy Spirit starts to move. And uh, we looked at those first three verses. And uh, we realized that there was two ladies, Yudia and Sinichi, who we don't know the situation. We're at odds with one another. And uh, Paul asked that that would not be the case. And uh, then he wanted to let them know that they were great servants of the Lord, but there were many others in the church whose names were in the book of life, which uh, I'm sure is always a great encouragement to remember that, that this is just a temporary life. Uh, We sort of exist here. We have life, the Holy Spirit is in us, but it's a challenging world we're in, but not for much longer. And today we're going to look at verses four and five. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Looking at verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I think we all have that memorized, don't we? You know, we got the the verse in in John Jesus wept. And uh, this one for sure, the two verses in the Bible that are pretty easy to memorize. But they can't say to Paul, yeah, you don't know how hard things are with my life, Paul. You just, you know, I'm an exception to the rule because my life is so difficult. They couldn't do that, could they? Because Paul's in prison in Rome. Incredible hardship. And of course, when we look at that list in 2 Corinthians 11, he had been beaten with rods and beaten and, and stoned to death and shipwrecked three times. And then we know about a fourth time at the end of the book of Acts. Um, hated by his countrymen and hated by others outside of that. He had such difficulty. And then he said, that which comes upon me daily is the hardest. And that's a great concern for all the churches. Yeah, Paul would be the exception to the rule. And he didn't. He was quite the opposite of complaining. A matter of fact, you guys remember how the church in Philippi reaching the Gentiles. They they were out in the river each week. And and there was a lot of Jewish ladies and and others um, that he preached to. But the gospel reached the Gentiles when he was arrested and beaten and thrown into dungeon. And after being beaten with rods and all. Yeah, um, then what happened was, thank you very much. Now, when the mighty rushing wind comes, it's the day of Pentecost, so we should expect a mighty rushing wind. And there, Paul in the dungeon began to sing praises, probably, I'll fly away, oh glory. Um, and, uh, And the place began to shake, and all the prison doors were open, and... Philippian jailer started to kill himself, and he said, "Don't do yourself any harm. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be saved, and this goes for everybody in your whole family." And uh, he got saved. It was a powerful. So really, the church of Philippi came out of this very doctrine of rejoicing in the Lord always, even when you've been beaten with rods, even when you're chained in a dungeon. <laughs> it just snapped. But it is like whew. it's like, whoa. Okay, anyway, we'll we'll make it. We'll make it." So rejoice, be glad. Make a happy heart. The word rejoice actually has the word joy in it. But it's it's basically telling you the command to have joy. How do we say to have joy? We say rejoice. And so to be glad, to rejoice exceedingly, to make your heart happy by what you're focused on. Now, if Paul wanted to focus on his bruises and his cuts and the pain and the dampness of the prison, the humiliation of it all, then he would have been complaining, right? We remember Jonah. He was on the hill complaining, right? We um, know Moses complained. We, we do know that mighty men of God, when they get their eyes off of the Lord, they do complain. The apostles complained. But Paul made his heart happy. I, I don't know what his thoughts were in that dungeon. Maybe it was um, the certainty that, that God was going to continue to use him mightily. Maybe it was his name in the book of life. Maybe it was the mercies of God that morning. Whatever it was, It was not on his circumstances. It was in the Lord. Spurgeon talking about the issue before in these first three verses and this. So he says, quit arguing and being at odds with one another. And instead of being at odds with one another, remember your name is in the book of life and rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Spurgeon says this. I am glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. I am usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. (laughs) But as a cure for discouragement, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense to or to take offense Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is a cure for all discord. So it really is the the case. We want to feel happy, but happiness comes and goes, right? I mean, it's it's such a fickle creature, happiness, isn't it? You know, you're all excited to go to Disneyland and you get there and, and Susie is throwing up and the monorail that you've been looking forward to ride is closed and it begins to drizzle and and my happiness all week of going to Disneyland turns to unhappiness because of the circumstances. So happiness is really geared to the circumstances. But Joy is what we want to bring us to the filling of happiness. How do we get there? It's got to be in the Lord and not on the things of this earth because it is a roller coaster that will make you far more unhappy than happy, right? I, I You know, I, we sort of do it to ourselves, you know. We turn on the news and then we're just like getting punched, you know. Ah, the economy's bad. Gas is up. Look at what idiot this guy and what a hypocrite that guy is. And we're like going, why, why am I so unhappy? It's like, well, you might want to shut that off and spend some time in the word. Spend some time listening to some praise songs. Listen to a sermon. Yeah, we sometimes sort of make ourselves unhappy by focusing on the things of the earth. We need to be informed, but it's going to make you unhappy. What does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? With much knowledge comes much pain. <laughs> he the wisest man on earth was absolutely correct. But again, the focus here is not rejoice for rejoice sake. It's in the Lord. So it's in something very substantial. It's in the Lord. Not always are we able to rejoice in our circumstances. But we are always able to rejoice in the Lord, knowing he's for us, not against us. I'll tell you, that makes me happy every day. He loves us. Boy, once, you, once that crack, once the, the shell is cracked in your life and you hear the Lord say to you, I love you, it'll change your life forever. And of course, Romans 8, 28, right? We know, we don't feel, we don't always get to see, but we know that all things have a plan of God's sovereignty to be turned around for good. What did Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, and then later in, he was put into prison as a rapist, which is a false accusation. And then he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Then he ends up being number one power in Egypt next to Pharaoh. And when his brothers, after the father dies, the, pro- the brothers are afraid that now he's going to Kill them. He says, No, no, no. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we always have these great confidences, even in the harshest times, the hardest times, that we know God still has us in His sovereign hand and that no weapons formed against us will prosper. They may ding us, they may bruise us, they may cut us, but ultimately, No matter how evil the world may have plans against us, God will turn it around for good and for his sovereignty. So, this is why the Bible doesn't tell us to try to be happy in this world, but it tells us to be joyful in the Lord. So, it's it's amazing how preachers actually say, It is God's will for your life, for you to be happy in this world. If you will get born again, you'll be happy in this world. If you read the Bible and seek God, you will be happy in this world. The Bible, matter of fact, I think it even says the opposite of that. In this world, you'll have many tribulations. But be of good cheer or rejoice in the Lord. Because I've overcome the world, you'll overcome the world. But the Bible says this, for us to have joy in the Lord, in heaven, where our name is written in the book of life, that this life is very temporary. It's just a vapor. And then we're going to be living in our new bodies with the Lord. And so we can now Take that promise of God to rejoice and to have joy in Him, in His nature, not the nature of this wicked world, in His goodness, not the evil of this world, in His promises, not in the seductive lies of this world, in His peace that passes all understanding, not the peace of this world. In Nehemiah 8.10, it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that great? By rejoicing in the Lord, by having joy in the Lord, it strengthens us. And I'll just tell you, next week we're going to be looking at the topic of anxiety. Boy, we live in a world, especially in the country, where pills for anxiety are given out like candy. And if you're on them, no condemnation. And absolutely, I'm not saying that's wrong at all. I'm just saying that we are a very anxious country in particular, but I don't think it just stops with America. <laughs> I think it's worldwide. We have anxiety, even when we don't need to have anxiety, even when it's non-founded. In other words, there's nothing to be anxious about, but my mind is whirling telling me that I need to be anxious and and then often have a, a panic attack or so forth. We're going to talk about that next week. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it is a strength to us, and I believe emotionally, when we get our eyes on the Lord and have joy in the Lord. In Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit or from the Holy Spirit. So, as you're strengthening that inner man, the joy is coming from the inner man. As Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will cause us to gush forth unto eternal life like a dam breaking, the water comes forth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And uh, I, I should have mentioned too in, in Galatians 5. The fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit is, the very first thing, joy. In Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with what? All joy. I guess there's partial joy. Maybe you're one of those people that have had partial joy in the Lord. 10% joy in the Lord. And you're going, yeah, I've had joy in the Lord. It didn't really do that much for me. Well, maybe it's because you didn't have all joy. Maybe you didn't go all in and get excited about your name being written in the book of life. Written in the book of life, oh, that's arbitrary, that's, that's hypothetical, that's, that's a zillion years from now. And, and you don't really stop and meditate. What will it be like when I'm in heaven? What will heaven be like? What will it be like to see those loved ones that have gone before us? The Bible says if we think about those things, it purifies us even as Jesus is pure. In Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? In believing that you may abound in hope. Hope in the Greek is a a certainty. You abound in the certainty by, again, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul doesn't just say rejoice in this verse, does he? You said, man, I didn't think anybody could talk 20 minutes on two phrases out of one verse. Yes, I can. I am that good. Um, (laughs) Now we come to the second part of that verse. Again, I say rejoice. Now you say, why is Paul saying again? Because unless you were paying attention, it's ridiculous amount of times he has used the word joy. And now he's saying it again, for the last and final time in this book. But look at how many times he's, he's talked about this in either encouraging us to have joy or outright commanding us to have joy. Philippians 1.4, 4, Always in every prayer of mine make requests for you with what? All joy. So you say, I wonder how Paul had joy in that prison when he was praying for people. When he was praying for the church of Philippians, it just caused them to have such great joy. In Philippians 1.18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. A double E rejoice. Maybe that's all joy. If you say rejoice in the Lord, you have 50% joy. But if you say, and again I say rejoice, now you're, you have an all joy. I, I don't know how that works. But this verse 18 is where people were out preaching against Paul. The reason they were going to various churches was to make sure that they hated Paul the way they hated Paul. And Paul said, I don't care. Say every bad thing you want about me. I'm just thankful these guys have the gospel right. And they do. And so praise the Lord. Whatever their motivation was, that's between them and the Lord. But they are preaching the gospel. And I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. In Philippians 1.25, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all your progress and your joy in the faith. Not just having faith, but having joy in the faith. Do you remember that? When you really, maybe when you came to Christ, or maybe there was a moment in your teenage years where you really surrendered to Christ in a new way. And you had such a Joy. Boy, I can remember that happened a few different times in my Christian walk where I I just literally for days would just walk around saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. You know, I I literally was annoying people with quoting scripture and singing songs and and telling them that Jesus loves them. But I, I, I just, I was on a mountaintop experience. And Paul is saying, really, one of the chief things of joy or of faith is to have joy in that faith. In Philippians 2, 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, the same love being of one accord, of one mind. So Paul is saying, if you want to make me joyful, he's going to tell them in a minute, thank you for sending the money and the supplies to help me while I'm in prison. But the real thing that brings me joy is that you guys have the mind of Christ and together, you're walking together in a like-mindedness in a like love in Philippians 2:16 holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain that they would continue to grow in the Lord and be strong and fruitful and when we're all standing before Christ at the bema seat that is the seat for reward for all believers he says when God's given out the crowns for being faithful pastors that as God gives the scorecard or I don't know what you would call it of, of how the church did in being taught the word and walking in obedience that I'd have great joy when I hear of the church in Philippi and see you guys getting great rewards. That will be my joy. In Philippians 2.17 Yes, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I am glad and rejoice with you all. So yes, I'm in prison and I am being sacrificed. Uh, This is God's will that I be sacrificed. And don't feel sorry for me. I definitely don't feel sorry for myself. I'm just glad that I can be here in prison. Maybe at this point, Paul sensed that the letters he was writing had a special unction, a special moving of the Spirit. When he rolled that scroll up and put his mark on it and handed it to the guy to take it to all the churches and read, maybe he sensed this is more than just a letter. And he realized my time in prison has made me write, made me sit and meditate, has made me sit and pray more than I ever would have done any of those things if I was going town to town preaching the gospel. So... No, I'm glad and rejoice that I'm sitting here in in prison because it's for you. And boy, you know, I hate that Paul was in prison, but aren't we thankful that Paul was in prison? And he couldn't just go to the church of Ephesus and tell them the book of Ephesians. He could just go to Philippi and tell them the book of Philippians. But he had to write these letters and, and, and now we get to read these letters or sermons or spiritual truths for thousands of years. In Philippians 2.18, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. In Philippians 2.28, therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Talking about Epaphroditus who was sick and they had heard that he died. But he's saying, no, 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 no. This is untrue. Now that he's coming and bringing the letter that you may rejoice in his health and the sacrifices he's made for the church in Philippi. In Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but to you, for you it's safe. So don't think that uh, me writing the same thing I've told you in person is, is tedious. And man, I'm so sorry, Paul had to write such a long letter. No, rejoice. This is so important that it's done. In Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit interesting what is it to live the circumcised life the second part of that is is not that we just worship god in spirit that's the first part but equally so the second part of being this living the circumcised life is rejoicing in christ jesus and then the third thing have no confidence in the flesh don't trust in the law or don't trust in your good works to make you righteous can't be done and then in philippians 4 1 therefore my beloved and long for brethren my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. We talked about that last week, how they were his joy and his crown on the day of judgment when they are greatly rewarded for walking in obedience. That is Paul's treasure, is them and them doing well. Well, now we come to verse five. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, this word gentleness, we don't really have a parallel verse in the English. It's epikase, the Greek word epikase. Moderation, the Old King James translates it patience, appropriateness, an equitableness, a fairness, a mildness, a gentleness. The Greek word, it has this idea not to be unduly rigorous. So it's not to be this harsh, difficult thing. Being satisfied, another part of that is being satisfied with less than ones due, Or a sweet reasonableness or a forbearance. Listen to all the different ways this word is translated in the various translations a gentle kindness, are gentle and kind, uh, to be considerate, to be forbearing, to be that your gentleness would be evident to all. David Guzik says this, Paul used an interesting ancient Greek word, epikase, that the translated gentleness here. Other translations of the Bible translate epikase as patient. I like this one, softness. I like this next one patient mind, modesty, forbearance, forbearing spirit, or magnanimity. I think this is the closest English word that we have, magnimity. Let me give you the de- definition of this word, magnimity, the quality of being magnanimous. <laughs> I love when the dictionary does that, but you know, I, I think we use the word magnanimous more than we use the word magnanimity. Magnanimous. Okay. Secondly is a loftiness of spirit. Yeah, I can't say it too many times in a row. I will start speaking in tongues unless somebody has the gift of translation. Here's the second definition. Loftiness of spirit, enabling one to bear trouble calmly. To disdain meaningness and pettiness. I really like that one. Here's the last one. To display a noble generosity, especially in the area of forgiveness. You see, I think that that gets it. There's such an overwhelming sense that heaven is so near that there's just this light touch on things of earth. Let's say you come to a bus stop and you wanted to sit down. But the bus is gonna be here in one minute, and the bus and the and the seats at the bus stop are, are all taken. Would that bother you? Like, oh I need to sit down and I gotta wait one minute. Oh. There, there probably wouldn't be that sense, right? It's sort of like, yeah, one minute, I'll just stand big deal. This is the idea. That when people in the world are so upset and they're going to sue you and they're going to make sure they get their rights. And we're like, I'm here 30 more seconds. What's it matter? That's sort of the sense. But it's on the positive side of saying there's such a graciousness, such a kindness, such a gentleness in your life. You're not like everybody else in the world. Everybody else in the world is trying to cut in front of everybody else on the freeway and get to the red light first and, and be the first in line. Oh, I see somebody, I'm gonna beat them. Ah oh, okay, there you take it, old lady. I'm first, you know. That you're different. That you're putting everybody's first. You're seeing everybody as greater than yourself. you you're not you're not brain tied and emotionally tied to the things of this earth. Have you have you seen this where people are fighting each other? They're fighting their next door neighbors because of a bush. Or because they put the fence two inches under their too far under their property. This is no joke. Or here's the big one of course, the dog poops in their yard and they don't clean it up. I mean that That's the unforgivable sin. You don't go to heaven if that happens. It's it's amazing how people are so upset at everybody else, stopping their joy, stopping their happiness, interfering with my life as if this is it. I need to make this such a quality time because once I die, I just become fertilizer for the the grass to grow green and the cows to eat the grass. We don't believe in that way, do we? And this mentality is to be so consistent that everybody in your sphere sees it. Notice the next phrase. It would be known to all men. You don't turn it off ever. So when you're at the Little League ball game, (laughs) when you're in the grocery store, when you're on the freeway, when you're at the beach, when you're with your family, when you're with strangers, when you're at work, when you're at home, there's this constant magnanimity about your life. There's just this constant magnanimous about you that you have a sense that You're not grabbing onto the things of this earth. But everything has a soft touch. And I'm so, I'm more in heaven right now than I'm on earth. I may be physically here, but my heart, my mind, my desire, my joy, it's all in the Lord and in the life to come. And therefore, things of earth that upset so many don't have that effect on me. Do we get it? And then he says this phrase, the Lord is at hand. I guess in one sense, this could just be the Lord's next to you. He's watching. But almost no commentary sees it as that way. (laughs) They almost all see it as saying the Lord is returning. The rapture is about ready to happen. It's interesting in Peter, I don't have the verse here in the notes, but, you know, one of the signs of the times is people saying, you've always been saying Christ is going to return. Has he? No, everything's been the same. You get us all excited and then we're let down. But one of the signs is people hardening their hearts about being ready for the imminent imminent return of Christ. So we don't want that. We want to have this heart that the Lord's coming back at any time time any moment and so it's interesting that this is what the Bible teaches us through the Apostles excitement and example did you know the first generation church not one or two several of the Apostles fully believed they would see the rapture of the church in their lifetime Paul John Peter, James. Let's look at this together. In 1 Peter or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 to 31, but this I say, brethren, what? The time is short. So that from now on even those things, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as they though they did not rejoice, those who buy as those who did not possess and those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. Paul goes as far to say the Lord's coming back so soon, don't even bother to get married. You don't have time to wrestle with the trials of marriage. Look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. I believe Paul also wrote this book. But he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Um, And not, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So Paul is saying, I see this day approaching. This is time to get in church more than any time in history. Because the Lord is coming quickly. And of course, Paul in all his letters writes about it's going to be a perilous time. It's going to be a difficult time to keep yourself in the love of God. We're going to need all the little pieces of charcoal to get together to keep the fire going together. And being by yourself is a very dangerous way to try to make it through the last days. We need to hear good, sound doctrine and teaching. And so he says, man, especially right now, he's saying, right now, more than ever, encourage people to love and good works. Right now, more than ever, encourage people to keep coming to church and be a part of fellowship. More than ever, because the Lord's coming. Can't you see it? I can see it. In James 5, verse 7 through 9, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until uh, you receive the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Listen to that again. Establish your hearts for what? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The Lord's coming back so quick. I, I, he's already at the door. He's opening in the door right now, getting ready to come out. This is how James saw it at his time. Look at Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. <laughs> Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. In 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last hour. <laughs> wow. No wonder the Lord showed this guy the book of Revelation, right? Showed him that great thing. He was confident. Man, we're not, we, we, you know, nobody knows the, the day or the hour, but I, 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 I know I shouldn't say it. Jesus told me that nobody knows the day or the hour, but I think we're there. I I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I think we're in the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Was John convinced? He was convinced the Lord's coming back any minute. In Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things that must come shortly, which must shortly take place. Things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant, John. You say, man, this is the written word of God. It's error It's infallible. But these guys were wrong. They weren't in the last hour. They weren't in the days when the rapture of the church was coming. Guys, this is the point that every generation, including the first generation, had this expectancy that the signs of the times are showing the Lord is coming now. Now, I don't know if the Lord's coming back, but we should all believe that it is. And man, I'll tell you, I see the signs of the time. Did you guys catch this last week? And the guy who is. Um, over the NATO said the number one thing for Europe is to have one combined army. Guys, I don't know if you realize but the Antichrist is coming out of the revived Roman Empire which is most of Europe and Istanbul, Turkey. And out of that one of the smaller insignificant countries of Europe, the Antichrist is going to come out, take over three other countries, and then he's going to become the leader of that Roman Empire with an army, with a one-world currency, and then eventually a one-world religion. I don't know if you saw this last week, but for the first time since World War II, Germany is spending billions of dollars to bolster their military. Many are asking, is that legal for them to do with the agreements at the end of World War II? Nobody seems to be saying a word about it. They're doing it. Yes, guys, I I could go on and on like this. The days are of Sodom and Gomorrah. The days of Noah were the days where violence was in the, the world and the hearts of men were evil continually. I'll tell you what, it takes no imagination to see these signs being fulfilled in our midst. Now, does that mean since the signs are being fulfilled in our generation, the Lord has to come back? No. Maybe the signs were like that a thousand years ago in the world. We just didn't know about it. The Lord could have came back, but he didn't. If the Lord waits another hundred years to come back, He'll have to make it just like now. (laughs) It needs to look just like now for him to come back. So he may have to rework everything to come back to look like now. But guys, when you look at the last days, we were going to and fro throughout the world. Knowledge would increase. I mean, the, the list is long and all the checks are checked. Here's one. The gospel will go throughout the entire earth. Has that happened? Man, has knowledge increased? Oh, like never before. And so I can tell you that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. And all the power capitals of the world, including Washington, D.C., are more demonic now, are more greedy for power, every country, than ever before got emboldened the pandemic. And so I, I tell you that these apostles are giving us an example to follow. In other words, if they didn't have this sense the Lord could come back in their lifetime, they would have been wrong for not having that. If John's like, now I want to prepare you guys. It won't be for at least a couple thousand years, but let me tell you, eventually thousands of years from now, the Lord's going to come back. And you happen to be in that generation, you know, 2,000 years from now. Here's the way you need to think. He could have done that, right? But no. He says, the Lord's going to come back. Here's the signs. And they're happening right now. Get ready. Everybody had that. Why? Because the the, the concept of the imminent return of Christ is 100% necessary for us as believers, how important is the teaching of the imminent return of Christ? The New Testament clearly teaches that Christ could come at any moment. I believe this is not just because of the newspapers, but also because I read it in scripture. From the very earliest days of the church, the apostles, the first generation Christians nurtured an earnest expectation and a affirmative hope that Christ might suddenly return at any time to gather together the church into heaven. And so when we look at this, we realize there's three major questions that get prompted. The first question is, will the tribulation precede Christ's coming for the church? The answer to that question is that it will not. Because the church is never asked to look forward to the tribulation period. But they are asked to look forward to Christ's coming. You know, the Bible, if if we were going to be in the tribulation period... Wouldn't the Bible be saying, hey, you need to store up at least three and a half years worth of food. And since you can't buy or sell, you need to start making underground bunkers that are hidden. I mean, wouldn't that be the case? It doesn't. It says, thinking about the Lord's return, be excited because you're going to be with Christ. That's what the Bible repeatedly says. Second question is this. How could How could have the return of Christ been imminent in the early church? The answer is here is that no one but the Father knows when the coming will occur. So Christians, including the early church, must always be ready. The third question is why is Christ's imminent return so important? The answer is simply this. It gives us motivation to all believers to purify their lives, to progress towards the goal Of the sanctification in Christ's likeness. Now, I don't think we're to worry about whether I'm gonna make it to heaven or not. When you look at Christ giving the gift of eternal life, it's to take all that worry away immediately. But we are sinful flesh, and we need help with our sinful flesh. So the imminent return of Christ is tension we need. If I had any old tension on a guitar and tried to play it, play it, what would happen? It wouldn't work. I've got to tighten every string. Sometimes it sounds like they're getting ready to snap. But they don't. And then you get all the strings in tune. A lot of tension in those strings. In the same way, for us, the Lord... We could be seeing the Lord any moment right from right now. It is tidying it up, putting, getting us in tune. Listen to what Jude says. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, in verse 20 to 23, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus into eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. So Jude sees a picture of right before the rapture, there's people that are sinning, their clothes still smell like their sin. And you're grabbing a hold of their shoulder and, hey, you're supposed to be raptured. And as their little butt gets singed, they get pulled into heaven. And then Jude verse 24 to 25 then makes the doctrinal point. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior alone, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, both now and forevermore. Amen. So he's saying here, guys, keep yourself in the love of God. I think knowing that Christ could come any moment helps us to do that. Keep a life of prayer, I think thinking the Lord could come back any moment does that. So the threefold call of the eminence of the doctrine is to wake up and cause us to walk in obedience now. To throw off the works of darkness and to put on the garments of the holy living. I'm going to close with this final verse of Paul. And do this knowing the time. It is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, let us put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the day, not in rivalry, drunkenness, not in lewdness, in lust, not in strife, in envy, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provisions for the flesh, To fulfill its lust, he's not talking to the non Christian world. He's talking to the Christians. And you see, the Christians here have become so sluggish that they sound like the world. They have the ability to put on the armor of light, but instead they're walking in darkness. I want to walk in darkness, I got to take off the armor of light so people will think I'm just another person in the world. They don't know I'm the light of the world. They don't know I'm the salt of the earth. And I want them I want to go in incognito and and do my sinfulness. What is those sins? Rivalry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, envy, the list could go on of course. And he just says, "Guys, the Lord is coming. The day is at hand. Let's quit walking in such Laziness. It makes me think of that parable that Jesus taught where the owner of the house says, hey, you need to run the house. He says to his top servant, make sure all the fields are taken care of and the house is run and the money is kept and and be faithful. And I'm going to come back. I'm not sure when. And at first the servant's really on top of everything. But then I guess years goes by. And he starts thinking he died in battle somewhere or something or he got a new house, a new family. He's he's gone. He's never coming back. And so the guy's nature begins to disintegrate until he's being a horrible lead servant. He's beating the people and treating them horribly and not taking care of things. And then one day the master shows up when he's acting like this. And... You can read the proverb or the parable, to what happens to that guy. It's not good. And so we want to be diligently running towards the end mark, towards the goal. We want to be finely in tuned. We want to be ending our life on earth with victory, with bearing much fruit, walking in righteousness, right? Peter says, therefore. will have an abundant entry into the everlasting kingdom. John says in 1 John, abide in him so you don't shrink away in shame at his appearing. So there's two sides of that coin. Rejoice in the Lord always. Your name's in the book of life. For the final time, Paul will say, rejoice. And then let your... Magnimity be evident to all men because the Lord's at hand amen Lord thank you for your word today and we know that your Holy Spirit has to give us that conviction that fear of the Lord that gains knowledge that fear of the Lord that gains wisdom that fear of the Lord that causes us to depart from evil Lord, we ask today that the holy fear of God would fall upon us and greatly convict us. Do you have a sense that you have called us not in uncleanness, but in cleanness and holiness? That you called us children of light, that we would walk in children of light. Is right now, your word goes forth. I know there's some people walking in darkness. Lord, as I've meditated on this this week, you've revealed things in my own heart that are not keeping me in tune. Lord, let all of us not just hear a sermon and eat some donuts and have some coffee and leave. Lord, we ask that we would have a moment here where we could come out here and stack a bunch of rocks and say, this is where the Lord met us. Today is the day of Pentecost. Oh, how the fire fell. Let your fire of cleansing, your fire of, of the dross and the things in our life that need to be gone. Some have been accumulated over time and some have never, they've never left us even after we got born again. Things that are wrong attitudes, things that are sinful, fleshly, worldly, lustful, greedy, anger and malice and unforgiveness. Lord, help us, God, to be this people that are so magnanimous, such a soft touch on the things of this world because we know it's all going to pass away very soon. All the gold, all the silver, is all going to pass away. All the great treasures of earth, they're going to melt away with the fervent heat after the end of the tribulation period. Or after the end of the millennial period. And so we know, Lord, that there's nothing to hold on to now except heaven and you. Cleanse us, Lord. Wash us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.